Fear is one of life's most common symptoms. You know it, and you know it can be paralyzing. But what you might not know is that there's a simple, effortless cure for fear that's revealed all throughout the Bible. I'll show you. This is the Shut Up Devil Show. And I'm Kyle Winkler, here to shut down the enemy's lies in your life. And I do it live on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. So join us live, will you, sometime? We'd love to have you. I'm starting a new series, which I'm calling The Gospel, The Simple Cure for Life's Common Symptoms. Obviously, gospel is a play on the word gospel. And let's talk about that word for a few minutes, because I found that it's different than most people think it is. So you have to understand this foundationally right up front here. Chances are you think of gospel in one of the few ways that I thought over the years. As a child, I thought the gospel was a set of readings from one of four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's because in the religious tradition of my childhood, that's how I came to know it. There was a point, maybe 10 minutes into the church service, in which the gospel was read, a passage from it at least. And as a kid, it was pretty boring. Definitely not something I saw as transformative or the answer to any kind of symptom. It may have given me some symptoms back then because of how boring I thought it was. Well, as I transitioned into the modern evangelical church world, certainly the gospel was still contained in those four books, but more than just books, I came to know it as a kind of message that was preached all throughout the New Testament and still today. It was much more lively than I ever experienced, and it was described as far more powerful than I ever knew. But what did its power accomplish? For at least the first decade of my faith, beyond producing salvation, of course, I saw it as a kind of set of instructions that, if followed, produced blessings and healings and deliverances, produced a better, easier life. Of course, it was always effort or sacrifice in exchange for reward, which, you know, whether having to do with money or not, that's what's called a kind of prosperity gospel. You get something for giving something. Now, does the gospel produce blessings, deliverance, and healings? Absolutely. But not because of your effort, sacrifice, grit, or grind. You see, this is why the Greek word for gospel, which is euangelion, means good news. I actually contend it should be translated as nearly too good to be true news. That's because it promises something for nothing. At the time of Christ, the gospel seemed too good to be true for many Jews. It seemed too good to be true for many Gentiles. The true gospel seems too good to be true for many people today, which is why they make it out to be a lot of things that it isn't, and thus strip it of its real power. So what is it? And what's its real power? I'll take you through some scripture clues here. We're going to kind of do a walk through the word in the New Testament at least. 
And we'll start with the words of Jesus in Mark 1.15. Jesus is beginning his ministry like this is right at the beginning. He's in Galilee and he makes this declaration. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Three words in this verse serve as clues. First word is repent. It's metanoia in Greek, which means a change of mind. The second word is believe. The third word is gospel, which as I said a minute ago means good news. So, Jesus began his ministry saying, change your mind and believe in the good news. So, next question. What is this good news that you must believe? Change your mind. Same concept for both of those words, really. For this, we need to go to the book of Acts. In Acts 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching to Jewish people in Antioch, and he tells them that we are here to bring you the good news. And in verses 38 through 39, he spells out what the good news is. Look at this. Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man Jesus, there is forgiveness of your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. From this, we get a good picture of what the gospel is and why it's good news. It's forgiveness of sins and being made right, receiving a new nature, all accomplished without effort, but by belief in Jesus. And Paul is sure to stress that no effort part, which is why he added something the law of Moses could never do. You see, as I often describe, the Old Covenant was a kind of spiritual contract whereby forgiveness and good standing with God was based on commandment keeping and sacrificing. It was a whole lot of effort that provided only very temporary peace. But through simple belief in Jesus, one could be completely forgiven and made right. So do you see why that news would seem too good to be true to these Jewish people? Now, what does this news accomplish? Let's go to the book of Romans. In Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Gentile. Verse 17, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. Here again, just as Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, and as Paul said in Acts, he reiterates to the Romans that this good news is something to be believed by anyone. Now, final clue about what is the true gospel or what does it do? Salvation is the Greek word soteria, 
and it means deliverance. Deliverance from what? Well, all the verses we've read so far and the context in which the gospel is always described tell us deliverance from sins, your old sinful nature, and from the old system of having to earn anything from God or appease him in some kind of a way. And that was good news for both Jews and Gentiles. For Jews, because as I said, they lived lifetimes of law to be at peace with God, and Gentiles, because they did all kinds of things to appease various gods. So this idea that you can be permanently right with the one true God by believing in his only son was good news, and it still is. And let me say why this true definition of the gospel matters, and I speak from personal experience about this. If you believe like I did, that the gospel is some sort of promise of no troubles or of wealth or power, then it's only a matter of time before you feel like you were sold a bill of goods. If you believe blessings come from performance, then you'll believe misfortunes must come from failure. And there are a lot of misfortunes in life. And if you don't get bitter at God, you'll exhaust yourself with worry or striving, trying to prove or provide something that Jesus already proved or provided. The true gospel is that Jesus did everything necessary to make you right with God. Belief in that provides salvation, which is deliverance, not only from sin in your old nature and any need to appease God, but the byproduct is deliverance from some of life's most common symptoms. And the first, which we're talking about in this message, is fear. You know, fear is one of the first symptoms experienced after Adam and Eve's first sin. Genesis 3 describes that once the first couple sinned, they knew that they were naked and they hid from God. When God came looking and found Adam, he said, why are you hiding? And Adam responded, I was afraid. He was in fear because I was naked. But what was he afraid of? Spiders? The ferocious animals that he suddenly saw around him? No. Adam was afraid of God and afraid of himself, really. He was afraid of God's anger. He was afraid of rejection. He was afraid of death. Now, interestingly, if you do a word study in the New Testament on fear, you'll find that every instance in which it mentions freedom from fear or deliverance from fear is always talking about one of the same kind of fear that caused Adam and Eve to hide. Well, back then, God provided them a gift of grace, a temporary animal skin covering to cure their fear temporarily. But that was just a foreshadowing of the permanent gift of grace he'd later provide through the sacrifice of Jesus, which would cure this fear permanently. And it's the gospel. Let's look at how it cures the fear that God is mad and therefore you might be punished. I mean, what causes people to hide from God more than that? Nobody wants to run into the presence of somebody that they think is out to get them. 
And I found this kind of notion that God is mad and God is mean and God's out to get you is behind most atheism. I write about it in my upcoming book, Permission to be Imperfect. But almost every prominent atheist describes God as a cosmic bully causing all the suffering in the world. They assume that what they read about God in the Old Testament is how God is today, and they miss the gospel. And so they become the target of the devil's number one attack, which the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He says, Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news of the gospel. So how does the good news cure the fear that God is mad? I'll take you to 1 John 4. First, the context. This first letter of John was written to a group of churches where false prophets, what they called antichrists, were denying the humanity of Jesus. And they were denying the reality of sin, too. They taught that people were born perfect because sin didn't exist, something called Gnosticism. Anyway, in his letter at the beginning, John reminds people that there's no need to believe the lie of Gnosticism because once you've confessed your sins at salvation, then you are cleansed of all wickedness forever. By chapter 4, he reminds them of God's love and how Jesus provided it by dying physically on the cross. In 1 John 4.10, John says, He loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Because of that, in verse 13, he goes on to say, and God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. What does all that mean? Lots of things, of course. One of them is this, verse 17. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus in this world. Other versions say, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. In other words, John says, you are forgiven and you had a change of nature that makes you clean and complete, just like Jesus. That's the gospel message, forgiven with a new nature. John goes on to say in verse 18, such love has no fear because, you know this one, if you've been in the church for a while, perfect love casts out or expels or delivers from all fear. And what is that fear? Is it fear of spiders or heights? Not really. He says it. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. So you see, the gospel is the cure for the fear of punishment because it assures that you are good with God, right with God, and that won't change. I'll personalize this just for you. Because of your belief in Jesus, you are as Jesus is, which is fully forgiven, clean, and complete. There's not a speck of you that's not forgiven. And it's not like what I was taught growing up, and probably you too, that you were only forgiven until you 
make another mistake or a bad thought or something like that. That only perpetuates fear of punishment because what happens if you die in the minutes or hours or days between your next confession? No, the gospel message is that you were fully forgiven at salvation and received a new good nature so that you were forever heaven ready, forever at peace with God. The only judgment you'll get on judgment day is well done, good and faithful servant. So hear that. God is not mad at you. If anything, he's mad about you. The second kind of fear is what we saw in Adam, which is still common today. It's that something changed about you and therefore God changed his mind about you and might reject you. This really builds off the last one we just discussed, but let's change from the Apostle John to the Apostle Paul. Taking you to Romans 8. But first, here's the context. Paul is speaking to Roman Christians about the power not to sin. And his answer, as it is throughout all of his letters, is our new nature. In this chapter of Romans, he talks about how our old nature was a slave to sin, so we naturally disobeyed. But because of our new nature, we now have God's Spirit in us, so we naturally want to obey. Even still, because we have flesh, we will sometimes fail. Not because we want to, though, but because, as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Paul's encouragement about this to the Romans in chapters 8, verses 15 through 16 is, You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for the Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. That's a lot of words that can all be summarized in the gospel. With your salvation, you have a new nature. This new nature joined with God, which makes you his child. Now, being a child of God is an entirely different teaching. I go into depth about it in my series, God's Work. But suffice it to say that the change of nature that made you a child of God can't be undone. So here Paul says, fear not. Even if you slip up, trip up, fall, fail, sin, stumble, whatever name you want to give it, you can't remove your new nature. You don't have to fear that you changed or God changed and therefore might reject you. No, you remain his child, so you remain accepted and approved. It's as I've been saying lately, you can't undo the new you. Think of this in terms of your biological parents. You have their DNA. You can do a lot of things that they'd rather you not do. But nothing you do can remove their DNA from you. And that's really the good news of the gospel. You received a new nature. When you were born again, you didn't do anything to obtain it. You can't do anything to remove it. The gospel truth is that with your belief in Jesus, you are made right and never need to fear God's rejection. 
And that ought to give you a whole lot of confidence. If you mishear God, which we do at times, you're still safe. If you miss God's direction on something, because we do at times, you're still safe. And because he's in you, he's going to get you back on track anyway, so you don't have to be a slave to fear, running around worried about it all. You're safe. You're not going to change. And God's not going to change his mind about you. The third fear, which is reflected in Adam and is what experts say is the number one fear of people today. Can you guess? It's the fear of death. You see, before sin, Adam and Eve didn't know anything about death. They didn't see animals die. They didn't have any relatives or friends who died. All they had was this one statement from God that if they ate of the fruit of the tree of, good, of knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. It didn't sound good, but they didn't really know what it meant or what happens to people after they die. And that didn't change all that much many, many years later, really until the time of Jesus. There remained a lot of mystery about death. Jewish people kind of had evolving ideas about it. Some believed that the human spirit could not exist apart from the body, so they thought of death as kind of like the extinguishing of a candle. You just cease to exist. Many believed at times that people went down to this waiting place in the center of the earth called Sheol, and that eventually there would be some sort of bodily resurrection from there. Regarding their beliefs about death, one scholar wrote, the attitude of Judaism might be best summed up as, we really don't know. But if there is a life after this one and a reward for what we do, then it surely will depend upon the kind of life we lived. Hmm. What all of this means is that there was a lot of fear and uncertainty about death and a lot of busybodying, if that's a word, trying to make sure that if there is some sort of afterlife that we're going to do enough good things to make sure we're good there. And I know fear of death, as I said, it's the number one fear, still exists today, but that fear is cured by the gospel. Here's what another New Testament author had to say this time in the book of Hebrews. Let me give you the context of Hebrews. The author is writing to Jewish believers who were tempted to go back into Jewish customs and therefore slip out from their dependency on Jesus, making them right with God and keeping them right with God, really. So throughout the letter, the author continuously encourages them that what Jesus did is a finished work. That's why in Hebrews 1.3, the author says, when Jesus had cleansed us from sin, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down because as the high priest, there were no more sacrifices to make. So he could take a seat. This brings us to Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, 
the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. To be a slave to the fear of dying was to be running around doing all kinds of things to ensure that whatever happens after death is going to be good for you. Like I said, busybodying. But the author assures the people that because Jesus died and did everything necessary to forgive sin, and because they knew that Jesus spoke of eternal life in heaven for believers, nobody needs to fear death. You can know where you're going. You can know that the good life you have in heaven is all a reward for your belief in Jesus, not for how hard you worked or how much you sacrificed. So friend, if you don't know where you're going when you die, that can end today. You don't have to fear it. Believe in Jesus. Place your faith for what God requires in him. And if you are already a Christian, you don't have to be afraid that you keep your reservation for heaven secured by how much you prove anything to God. Your belief in Jesus made the reservation in permanent ink. Your name is written down in the reservation book and won't be erased. The good news means you don't have to fear death. So do you see the power of the gospel for salvation, for deliverance, from fear in these scriptures that we just explored? I mean, it's overwhelming. What else could deliver you from these kinds of fear? Only the good news can do it. That's why I kind of lightheartedly call it the gospel, because it is the simple cure for life's common symptoms. And we'll continue to look at how it cures more symptoms throughout this series. But lastly, let me bring up one more important point about fear from the Apostle Paul. Going back to Romans 8, in verse 31, he asks, If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Again, he's asking people to reflect on the good news that they are at peace with God. He goes on to say that because of this, they don't have to fear accusations, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. He says they don't have to fear condemnation. They don't have to fear troubles. And in verse 35, he kind of lists out what some of these troubles are. Things like persecution and hunger and danger and, again, death. But to be sure, he doesn't say that the gospel promises that these things won't happen to a Christian. After all, Jesus said in this life, you will have troubles. He said it rains on the just and the unjust. So the gospel isn't the promise of a pain-free life, but it is the certainty that none of life's pains are from God. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 38, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. No person, no past, no body, no battle, no sin, no struggle, no symptom, no nothing. Some of you are still living in fear of what your financial struggles mean about you or what some sickness or symptom means about you or you're afraid that God might be sending you troubles as a way to direct you away from something that you really want. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the good news, 
assures that God isn't afflicting you for any reason. Certainly, he doesn't need to use suffering to steer you. His Holy Spirit works a whole lot better at directing than that. He doesn't need to use death and pain and all that stuff to steer you. So please understand, life's troubles, pains, and symptoms mean nothing about you. You aren't in need of punishment. God isn't rejecting you. Nothing can separate you from God's love. And as we already saw in 1 John 4.18, the promise is that kind of love that you can't be separated from, perfect love, casts out, delivers from all fear. Okay, as I said in the message, the gospel is the truth about your total forgiveness. But that's not really even the half of it. It's also the truth of your exchanged identity. You have the identity of Christ, a new nature. And therein lies your ability to walk in peace, purpose, and holiness a whole lot easier than you ever knew. Truly, you just have to learn how to be you. And I show you how to do that in my new series, God's work. Discover the power of who you are. This series includes five messages, the foreverness of forgiveness, your change of heart, accessing the mind of Christ, the believer's rights, and there's nothing wrong with you. This God's work series includes almost two and a half hours of teaching that's sure to be transformational in your life. So I'm telling you, Embracing your true self, it's the key to your success. And I'll show you. Get my God's Work series on five MP3s at kylewinkler.org slash God's Work. That's kylewinkler.org slash God's Work. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he is for you. And we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast, and wherever you get your social media. And don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe follow button so that you never miss a show. I'll see you next time.